Hello, people, and welcome to episode four of the Perilous Pauline podcast, where we talk about music, buffalo, more music, and basically anything else I feel like talking about. Uh, this is volume one of the early 80s music in Buffalo. And as I was doing these interviews, I'm realizing I'm only scratching the surface. There are a lot more people I want to talk to, interviews I want to do, music I want to dig into. So stay tuned for volume two, maybe three and four. But right now, check out volume one. And remember, if you're enjoying this podcast and you want it to continue, please consider sponsoring an episode. It's a perfect way to promote your business or band or just because you are a cool person. Message me on Facebook or you can call uh, message me at www.paulineandthepodcast.com for more info. Thanks and enjoy. Hey, you guys. Hey, now. What's up? What's up? What's up? What's up? Do that. Hi, Pauline. <laughs> hey, I have the enemies in my home. Uh, for the first time doing an in-person interview. And they're all so handsome. <laughs> Good one. Lack up your value. one. I didn't know this was a comedy. Well, Guy said I'm the pretty one. Yeah. Well, you know. He is the pretty I one. I mean, you know, you got to have one pretty one. <laughs> so uh, here I have Fred Mann and Rick Castro. And what's your name? Guy. <laughs> Guy what? Polino. Guy Polino. So I have three of the enemies. Our dear friend, Peter. Chris is not here. We love him, but he's probably sleeping. Is that correct? Most likely. He's most likely. Most yeah. likely sleeping. Wake up, honey. Wake up. <laughs> so. He was out late last night. His Diane's uh, birthday yesterday. Oh, okay. And he was at a Zydeco show at the Sportsman. We're going to talk about anything we want to talk about. Uh, but mainly, we want to talk about the enemies. <laughs> and we want to talk about... Um, well, I know you guys, first I'll just say you have a show coming up on August 5th. 6, 6. Oh, six. Well, what? Zip! Friday night. You have yes. a show coming up on August 6th. It's a MIA benefit. Okay. And a CD release party of old enemy songs. Oh. Different recordings in the EP. Uh-huh. And Are they available like to buy? I think they're going to be available that night. All right. And there's three or four songs in there I haven't heard in 40 years, probably. And I, it's, it's pretty cool. Well, think after you hear them, will you be able to play them, do you think? <laughs> sure, if we want to. Yeah. But you don't do anything you don't want to do, do ya? No, no, we just, you know, I don't know. I don't play guitar or anything, so I could never tell them how to play it. Right. So now that we could hear it, yeah, we should be able to play it. So I don't play an instrument either, Fred. And do you, so it's everything's by ear for you? Like, yes. Yeah. I know it's like what, I don't even know, like what chord is it? Well, I don't, I don't Me know. Me either. I'll go like, it's like this. Dan, 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 you know. <laughs> right. That's the only way you could do it. Right. And then, oh no, it stops there. Right. And it starts there. Yeah. And I have found though that, you know, it, it really doesn't hinder working with people because they know what right chord yeah. it is. Yeah, well, sometimes. <laughs> I was thinking though, it's a little harder to get your point across, but it it works. Yeah, <coughs> and you have to like I was talking to George Playo the other day, and I was talking about look, don't tell me notes. Talk to me about feels. Like, yes. like what feel are you thinking? 
And he's like, so one thing we recorded was that he wanted like a James Bond feel. And so I'm like, okay. It'd be nice. I wish I could go, it's A, and then it goes to G, but I can't. Can I say something about it? No. This is my interview. No, go ahead. Well, no, I don't want to take your story. But Rick used to, me, Rick, and Joe were in bands way before the enemies. Joe who? Joe Bonsai. Of course. I've known Fred since I was like 13. Get out. Weren't you guys born on the, one day apart? Yeah. Yes. We were in same the same hospital. We were, the same, we were in the hospital at the same time. I talked to him in the, in, you know, the ward where the baby's nursery. They call it. Nurse, <laughs> oh, nursery. <laughs> it's a real nursery crime. <laughs> some Gaga Goo Goo going on there. <laughs> That's awesome, though. That's a great story. Yeah. So yeah. you were destined to be together. Yeah. And here you are on my couch. Cool. Yep. Holding so, hands. <laughs> skipping stones. Oh, you guys. All right. So I, so you were in a band together. When was that? With Rick? Yeah. Uh, like 15 at the time. 16, maybe. You were 15 or 16 years old. Yeah. Not in 1915. No, no, no. no. But <laughs> no, we, we weren't born yet. So 70s. like 70s. 70s yeah. yeah, yeah, 70s. Yeah. And what kind of music? Cover stuff. Uh -huh, like um, who would you cover? Stones, uh, Ian Hunter. Ian Hunter. Mm -hmm. um, I think we wrote, or Joe wrote one song. Not when I was. In, oh, okay. Because I I had talked to Joe about writing songs and he didn't want anything to do with it. Huh. And I remember having a, a conversation with him and telling him we should try and write some of our own songs. And his reaction to that was why nobody's going to want to hear that. Didn't we do a status quo song? Yeah, Paper Plane. Did you do? Yes. What one? Paper, Paper Plane. Ah. Oh, I did Pictures of Matchstick Men. Yeah, great uh, song. What else? Did we, I can't remember what else we did. I, I, can't, I really can't remember, you know. But it was the rock and roll. Okay. It was probably like, was it the days of like Midnight Hour and Mustang Sally? We didn't do any of those. Oh. No. We did, we did a lot of Stone songs. Ian Hunter, like you mentioned. Um, God, I can't think of anything. It's all right. It's all right. Yeah. So, all right, so this is in the 70s. And so then when did, when and how did the enemies form? Me and Joe lost contact for some reason. I don't know. We stopped playing. You got in a fight? No, I don't think so. Just went our separate ways. And then he had a band I'll put together. I was the last one to join. Really? He tried, he didn't want, I don't think he wanted me in the band. He tried out a bunch of different singers. And when I went over his house the first night, Peter and Bob, AKA Sammy Sinister, were already there. They had rehearsed a few times. And Joe had a song called Son of the Streets. And I came with words that was products of the streets. Oh, no way. So we it took was... my words and his music and we wrote products of the streets. No freaking way. So that was like one of your first songs. Yeah. They had the secret agent man. <laughs>
Hey, I wanted to let you know that on September 11th, uh, 2021 for Music is Art. I'm going to be singing with this great band called The Isolators. They're going to play a few songs, then I'm going to come up and sing some songs, including the very first Perils recording, which we're listening to right now. I can walk away. Uh, so 6.30 at the Cheerio stage. So bring your milk or non-dairy beverage of choice and uh, come and listen and come say hi and can't wait. We're going to talk more about the isolators later in the podcast. And in January of 1982, I joined with the band that ended up becoming the Restless. And that's when I don't think Joe played with uh, the enemies anymore. At that point. That's right. He switched to the Restless. But let's, let's let's wait a second. He was playing with the Restless behind the enemy's back. What? <laughs> he was cheating? Yes, he was. So I just want to go back to a little bit about how initially he just wanted to play other people's stuff. And one of my favorite things about Joe is actually his songwriting. I think he wrote some beautiful, great, yeah. sensitive, amazing Definitely. melody line choruses stuff right yeah with some great songs beautiful great. songs and, and the funny thing about it is when i went to their i was just telling these guys up the other night i went to their practice one night and i thought they sucked <laughs> i bought the ep the enemies ep and i only bought it because it was joe and friends and i think i got about halfway through one side and i took it off i couldn't stand it i mm. didn't like any of it and i guess it, it grew on me I mean, there's been songs, like a fungus. That you, well, yeah, <laughs> songs that you guys mentioned, you know, like, let's do x-ray specs. I was like, I don't want to do that song. I can't stand it. Now it's one of my favorite songs. Yeah.
a show. What a great show. Tim Tension here. Wicked Tension has some new vinyl out. Ask for it at your favorite record store. Here's a little peek of the Castro from our new record. But sucking leeches. All right, Tim Tension here again. You can find everything Tension at www.wickedtension.com. See ya. You know, I wanted to come out and like do a show, like a concert. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just come out and like smash it and leave. And that's exactly what you did and do, right? It is. Uh, yeah. So we're in McVans, and you know we have this amazing like I just so I'm other than Bobcat I think I'm your biggest fan obviously, and um, I was just I was 19 or whatever, and so my we, eyes are like we this. We prefer way. to think of you as our well proportioned. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's what you said before. Well proportioned. Well, it's better than being ill proportioned. Like us, McVans was the best. <laughs> You know, and so it was so dangerous in there, but I always felt safe, you know, little girl, you know, so I'm walking in there and I do clearly remember Joe Bomzak after we became friends, um, would literally, it was crowded, picked me up. He had these like moon boots, these yellow, remember those clogs or something? They were big white, like rubber boots. White, big white rubber boots. Okay. And maybe they were yellow because he was at McVans for too long. <laughs> so picked me up and like literally above his head, picked me up and then just placed me over by the front of the stage and there I would stay um, and never get hurt with any mosh pits. But um, can you, anything to say about McVans at all? Um, I do. Because is it your, do you feel like it's your roots? Like your beginning? Is yes. From the enemies? And what was so good about it, he let you do whatever you want. Put your own person at the door, charge whatever you want. He just wanted the bar money. And uh, like anything went there. Geez, it was so much fun. Everything. A lot went of there. debauchery in there, in the dressing room. Uh, <laughs> it was just great. Lost many brain cells in there. Yes. Can I ask a question? Yes. I'm just curious. How did you wind up playing there? Don't remember. Did you guys like? Did you guys have like a booking agent, or did you just do? No, it? not then. We probably just went to see him and asked if we could play. Yeah. What a historic place, though. I mean, you know. Yeah. Frank Sinatra, Jimi Hendrix played Joe there. Joe Rose was a trip. Joe I was in that place once, maybe twice. And then, and then, you know, after we started playing there, it became kind of like not punky, but that kind of music. <laughs> um, you can't even say that p word, can you? Oh, I'm just sick of hearing it. Um, you know, all the famous people that played there. B-52s, Al Chilton, John Cale. Right. It was great. Jimmy, Jimmy Hendrix. Well, that was way before. Yeah, I know. The, but it's still it's still part of the whole car. Yeah, yeah. Just, I was actually, cool. the first house that I lived in when I was a toddler was above the Schubert house. We, we really? had, my parents rented the apartment above the Schubert house. See what Played I there a lot. 
Yeah, the Schubert house, yeah. She used to keep my stroller down at the bottom of these giant flight of stairs. I, I, I don't remember any of this. You don't? No, I was too little. We had moved to Kenmore by the time I was like two years old. I okay. Oh, huh. You're really a Kenmore, huh? I guess. I guess. Different era, though. And then all the bands back there, too. You know, everyone had their own practice place, and it was a party, wherever, you know. The Indians were over here, and right. the scooters were over here. <laughs> the enemies down at Media Study. It was just so much fun, wasn't it? It was like a little New York scene. It was. You know what? Well, my favorite thing, you know, other than the music, which was so amazing, we just loved each other. Like, like we were a family. Like, oh my gosh, the enemies are playing. I'm going. I don't care what else is happening in my life. I'm going. Yeah. And then, you know, whatever anybody else that was playing, the scooters were playing, the jumpers were playing. Something that was happened. what we did. Yeah, and something was happening all the time. Yep. There was always a band playing somewhere at the masthead, at McMahon, the Continental, at Gables. Gables. Unheard of. Yes. Mm -hmm. Were you there when we filled the whole place with sand? <laughs> we did it at McVans was too. The beach? Yeah, I think I was at the McVans one. The beach party. Yeah, yeah that was that where the big fight was. Inside the Gables. At the beach party? I don't remember if there was sand there or not, but that was the first place I saw you. They had that little stage in the corner. Yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And I was always I would always disappear after the gig when we the next day when we had to take the sand out. <laughs> Why? What were you doing, Fred? Probably bad things, but I didn't want to do any manual labor. You didn't want to? Oh! Greg, when I went to see you guys at Gables, and I told you this before, you said you don't remember. But the thing that stands out to me the most was how good Joe sounded, because he never sounded that good before when I played with him. And you spitting into the audience really pissed me off. <laughs> I spitted the audience? Yes. Fred! Spitting into the audience. What a slob. <laughs> You know, that, that was probably that, like being that punk thing that you were. No, I, that was probably once in my life I did. Uh, I don't know. Maybe someone spit on me. No, I, you, you did it like four or five times in a row, and I thought you were an asshole. <laughs> I am. So if you were going to, Guy, if you were going to write a song about your life, like this is my life, what would you name it? <laughs> um. Boris. <laughs> the spider? <laughs> yeah, Boris the spider. Dead Man's Curve? Dead Man's Curve, yeah. Oh. Well, Fred Man's Curve was a band. Yeah. Yeah. So that's not fair. You can't use that. Well, actually, that this that's a funny story because we still consider, at least some of us, maybe not Rick, but we consider ourselves still kind of like we still are Fred Man's Curve. Yeah. And the story of that is really funny because I had a band... Sorry, it's my phone. I'm going to turn it off. Oh, I had a band called The Evictors with Peter Seacrest on drums and my brother Joe on bass. And we eventually became Dead Man's Curve. And that was the name of the band. And then we kept trying to get Fred to come back from Cortland to become our singer. And um, I, I was staying at my buddy's place in the mountains down by uh, in South Bolivar by the Pennsylvania border. Yeah. And he had no TV. So we had a VC. Uh, you know, VHS, whatever the hell they come yeah. up And uh, all we would do is watch reruns because there was no other entertainment there. Right. And we, I was watching Tool Time, I think it was. And um, 
they they were um, the kid was getting bullied at school, and uh, this is going to turn into something. I'm no, this is all rambling. good. Yeah, this is <laughs> but, um, and uh, the kid was getting bullied at school, and then the bully challenged him to a bicycle race, that, which he accepted. And uh, the 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 mother didn't want him to do it. The father was trying to train him. You know, was that Tim Allen was trying to train yeah. the kid to you know, so he'd win the bicycle race. And he goes and he's explaining it to his wife, and he goes and he's going to go along here, and and then right before he gets to Dead Man's Curve, and the wife freaks out. She goes, "Dead Man's Curve." He goes, "Oh no, no, Fred Man's Curve." And then I called up the guys wow. and said, I found the name. It's <laughs> Curve. Yeah, I didn't have anything to do with it. And the band was already Dead Man's Curve, so it was changing a couple consonants, and we were Fred Man's Curve. Oh, my gosh. And yeah. then that stuck for quite a while. As a matter of fact, Joe, Joe ended up joining us as a bass player when he was struggling with pancreatic cancer. He did. He ended up being the bass player for Fred Man's Curve for a short while. Really short, not a long time, right? Just we just what do we do? Two gigs with him, right, bass. Like that. I feel and like we that and we just passed me by and asked Joe to be the bass player. I don't I even know that we asked him. He used to come to all the Invictors practices. Oh. Joe would sit. He at, started coming to our practices he, up in he your would, attic. He would come to all the Invictors practices almost every practice. At one point, he would come up and just to sit with us and yeah. to hang out and that. And then he started doing the same thing. He kept doing it with Fred when it was Fred Band's Curve. And then he played bass with us. He he kind of just assumed. Yeah, it was Mark. And then as, a, as I'll call him for all bass players, he just kind of assumed the position. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because I had called Joe. This was after the Restless broke up and all that. Ooh. <laughs> and I called Joe and I said, you want to get together and, and play? And so he said, he said my, after the rest is broke up, I put my guitar in the attic and I haven't touched it. And he told me the whole story and I'm bummed out he was about it. But anyway, then eventually he called me and we got together and it was, I mean, we played down in his basement for quite a while and we were planning on getting a drummer and so on and so forth. And then certain things happened that screwed that up. But it was nice to get back together with him again because I hadn't played with him probably since I was, what, 18 or 19, maybe? And it was just nice to sit down with him, play his songs. Right. However, he did piss me off a few times because I'd do something and say, I want you to play it like that. Don't do that. Just do this. And he had a vision. But I went along with him. Now I can play whatever the hell I want. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it was nice to get because me, the three of us were like brothers. I mean, we didn't do basically anything without each other. And, uh, Joe and a lot of acid. Fred was supposed to be the best man at my wedding, but he decided he wanted to get hepatitis and he couldn't do it. So Joe wound up being my no, best I man. No, I stepped on glass. I had, no, you told me you had hepatitis. To make a long story short, well, you, came, did. you came to my wedding, so you could have been the best man. But, but instead, he was. Fred, man. But, but Fred, Fred, Fred's been stiffing me for years anyway, so it doesn't matter. Ooh, the stuff. So, when did you guys find out that Joe was sick? You told me. I really can't remember. He he told me, but I can't remember when it, it was. Was like what? Like mid eighties? Nine? When 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 did you? Nineties. 
right? 90s. What? Yeah, it had to be the 90s. He, he, what did he die in? 2001? No. Yeah. Did no. he die in 2001? No, he's been dead. It'll be 11 years in September. I'll, I, I'll so, tell you so what. 2010. Hmm? All right, so it was in the 2000s that, yeah. that you guys played a gig somewhere. But anyways, how did how, did he... You, how, 2010, he passed away. Okay. I got it in my calendar. Okay. That's my dyslexia. Twenty ten. Wow, when in twenty ten was it? Uh, twenty ten was eleven years ago. Right. <laughs> Did I mean what month or anything? Or? It was September sixth. Get away. out. Yeah. September sixth. He passed away. So, anyways, so, so when we say he, MIA, people. So it was probably around two thousand nine because he didn't. Once he found out, he wasn't around much longer. Um. Well, actually, it wasn't more I, than a year, was it? I think it was because I we were surprised that he. I remember being. Myself feeling surprised that he was, you know, unfortunately, that he was still alive. Because he had been given a year to live when he told me, and he <laughs> definitely lived longer than he, maybe, a, maybe a year and nine months or something. Well, I ran into him at the Italian festival. festival. Nancy would know, you know. Right, sure, sure. I'm sure she yeah. was there and for he, all the He told me then more. that they found a spot on him. That's all he told me. He says, that's all I know. And you had called me, I don't know how long after that, and told me that it was that it was pancreatic cancer. Jeez. Yep. Yep. No, we just don't know. We don't know when. No. And isn't it amazing? And and then I want to talk about, you know, now, but isn't it amazing that someone that was so I you know, a beautiful, sensitive soul, great songwriter. You know, brute of a guy, big guy, could be so insecure and so self-debasing. I'm just kind of thinking back to our conversation about how he thought you sucked after you played this, like, epic gig that everybody remembers, right? Yeah, that part wasn't too much fun. That was, was that was almost every gig, too. Yeah. That went on almost every gig. It's just so hard. You I, know? Don't, I, don't right remember, I don't remember a gig where, like... With the restless or with the enemies later when I joined the enemies. He wasn't doing that? Yeah, he did. Always did it. Oh. So you, he just always thought it sucked? Yeah, I, I can't hardly remember a time that he didn't. Uh, the restless warm, warm, we did a couple real big shows, real big. And I don't think, I don't remember him complaining about those. Okay. You know, we did a sold out show at the Niagara Falls Convention Center. We did a big show with Betty Mardonis and the Syracuse Fair, mm -hmm. real big shows. Yes, I know. Stinker. <laughs> no, but no, that's great. But anyways, I just wanted to say that it just goes to show, you know, he thought that feelings, there's feelings, they're not facts, there's feelings. And then now years later, we still love and listen to his songs and he still, you know, everybody still knows who he is. So, yeah. Anything else you want to say about Joe? Love him. Is it Miss great, him. He's a great guy. Yeah, yeah, it was like a brother. And, yeah. uh, you know, I contributed to maybe uh, the only child syndrome. <laughs> um, wrote great songs. A lot of fun and a lot of not fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, like life, right? And yeah. his son, his one son? David's son, one daughter. Son looks just like him. At least the last time I saw him, yes. it was like, holy crap, yeah. you look just like your father. So let's say hi to his family. Hi. Hello, hi. Hi, family. hi, David. 
He, he's a, a bass player, I believe, David. Is he really? Ooh. He, he sat in with us for X-Ray Specs when we played um, for the, the for Joe's Memorial at the Town Ball. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I got kicked out of curb on That's right. Oh, <laughs> poor thing. Well, he First called me, said, band kicked Rick's the new Joe. He said, uh, Kick to the curb. Rick, you want to play a couple songs with us at uh, Joe's Memorial? I said, yeah, that'd be great. And then about a week before, I said, yeah, uh, Joe's song's going to do it. Sorry. Well, who was that you were talking to? Freddie Boy? My, my good friend. Fred. Uh, well, it did, it did make sense to let David come on. Yeah, that. I know. Like, right. I came anyway. Fred, what was your favorite toy when you were growing up? My favorite toy? Don't be funny. Don't say anything gross. It was my Eldon Bolomatic. What the heck? Oh, I remember I had one of those. What is an Eldon It was a big, great, made out of plastic, long bowling alley, you know, about that big. Yeah. You put the ball in the guy's hand, <laughs> and there was a thing like a pinball machine. Yeah. And you bowled. And then you put the pins in the pin setter, and you cranked it, and they would come down. Well, yeah. First, first you would crank it, and it would actually sweep the pins off. Yes. Off. Yeah. And then you have to you have to put the pins back wow. in. Wow. That great. and my second one was matches. <laughs> <laughs> Mine was matches Mattel, a Mattel shooting shell lever action rifle. Oh. <laughs> Airgun. No, it shot. You remember the shooting shells? They shot the little plastic spring-loaded bullets. Oh, and another favorite of mine was the potato gun. Oh yeah. Oh, the potato gun. Then, yeah. I got one of those somewhere. People make those. Yes, Rick. What was your favorite well, toy? Well, so he stole my favorite toy, so I won't. So my next favorite toy was a a vacuum form. Vacuum form. With the jet, and you make the rubbery thing. Yeah, you would take sheets of hard plastic and put it in, and then turn it on, and would heat it up. And then you had little forms that you could put in, like making little cars or little Yeah. Or yes, I had one of those too. It wasn't, you didn't put it like in an oven or anything. No, you plugged it. it in. Yeah, okay. just heated up. Just it was it more up. for kids that had special problems. <laughs> well, that's all of us. Thank you very much. Sweet. Lord. Cool. What was your favorite toy, Polly? So I wasn't a normal kid, so I didn't, <laughs> see? But, so I didn't go out and play a lot. I actually listened to music all the time. That's it. You know, if I had allowance, I'd walk to Twin Fair. Thank you very much. Yeah, Twin Fair. With which my allowance and buy us 45, which I still have. She lived near the mall, right? Well, actually, at that time in my life, I was Colvin Boulevard. I lived on Colvin Boulevard, oh. and there was a Twin Fair up where. Because like, I know you were friends with my cousin and all his friends. Fred yes. Scott. Oh, hi, Fred. Fred Scott. Yeah. So yeah. that was, that's high school. So I was still listening to music only, but then I got out a little more. But as a kid, I like, I didn't play a lot outside. I remember me and my friend used to pretend we were married to one of the Beatles <laughs> and swing on Fred a swing and sing Beatles <laughs> Fred, I thought I saw you there. I used to give shows in my garage where I would, I would play a wooden plank and I forgot who it was. One of my friends would play a push, remember those bushel baskets? Oh yeah, yeah, upside down the drums, and we charge a quarter to get in, and we sing Beatles songs. Yeah, most money ever made, right? See, so word. Oh, that's yeah. when he. That's when he was. Uh, yeah, that's what it was doing. We were gonna, we were gonna make a movie after Help came out. We were gonna make another Beatles movie, and it was. Well, let's make it now. It was four of us, <laughs> yeah. and we practiced and practiced and practiced. And we just put the record on and lip sync, and it was, it was. I was George Harrison. Do you know? Did you know Paul Christie? 
And you are a Christian? No, I was just complimenting. No. Um, he was, he was uh, Paul McCartney. Craig Cummings was John Lennon. Teddy Corandis was Ringo Starr. And Joe Aronico was our manager. Joe Aronico. It was fun. We had a good time. We never did anything with him, though. He made faces, not our so I am so looking forward to seeing you guys on August 6th. 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 Thank you. Friday. At the Cave this Friday. And I'm also looking forward to seeing you guys at Music is Art at the Cheerios stage. I won't be there. <clears throat> oh, really? Yes, oh. we'll have a different bass player just for that night. Paul Wright. Paul Wright was actually one, he was the only person, my understanding, that ever sat in with the original enemies back in the day. He's yeah. a lifelong friend of Peter's. Paul okay. can play just about anything. Yeah, Love those very, people. Very talented. He won't be as good as me, though. Oh, well, I know. No chance. Plus, he doesn't have he, his butt. He's not either. as pretty as me. That's true. We're gonna, we'll, we'll, get him, we'll make him a Rick Massey. <laughs> what time are you playing, Paulie? So right I us. am playing right before you. Oh, cool. Which I'm so happy about because I us. asked, thanks, Robbie, because I requested that I wanted to open for you guys. Wow. So I'm glad that so we're play, so I play at 6:30 at the Cheerio stage. You guys play at 7:15 at the Cheerio yeah. stage. And I want to mention that I'm actually playing with a band called the Isolators. Um, so it's called the Pauline Thing. It's not Pauline the Perils. It's the Pauline Thing. But we're gonna play some really fun garage type melodic yeah. music. That should be great because the isolators are awesome. We all all saw them at, at Revolution Gallery. Yep. Craig's wonderful. Yes, and I think a far, that Farfisa organ is right good for you. Right I mean, in my alley, just, yeah, my alley. right. Am I right? <laughs> I love Farfisa organ, but I also I just love them, and so I'm so glad that I get to sing with them. There. Factory. Oh, that's I what I'm thinking. I no so idea. if you just smell, just you know, have your sense of smell happening for music is art, and follow your smell, and that's where we'll be. We could end up anywhere in Buffalo. You could smell that Cheerios <laughs> everywhere. <And> bring milk. <laughs> All right. Anything else you guys want to say? Any advice that you'd give to young? Don't get into drugs. <laughs> Hollow Wolf said that to me. And played on he did? Bus. We played, I was in a band. Have called, a backup plan. I was just going to say, have a plan B. <laughs> I was playing in a band called Prickly Heat and Chafing when I was 16 years old. Hey, can you say that again? Prickly Heat and Chafing. That was that was my band when I was 16. It was Lovely. The Torito Brothers and Gary Roloff. Me and Gary would, uh, we were never in the band at the same time. We were both guitar players. And, um, that was a really good band. But we were playing a blues festival at UB, and under the stage was a lot of room, and we hung out under the stage with Howlin' Wolf for like 
maybe an hour and he told us so like stories it was really cool he really liked us and we were young white guys playing the blues yeah because we did a lot of blues yeah it was in the 60s you know that would have had i was you're pretty old yeah i am <laughs> that had to be around 68. oh what a year yeah <laughs> well that's a cool that's a cool thing yeah he was very cool any he stories you remember don't do drugs while we were passing the joint but he was referring to narcotics yeah he was telling us about people that died from heroin and stuff right he would know those are people that died died they were all my friends and they died but we're alive people and we love you and we're gonna see you soon the 6th of august and also the 11th of september thank you Molly. love you guys love you back bye Bye. (laughs) (laughs) hey do i have bernie from the good on my phone Hi, Pauline. Hey, how are you? Doing good. How about you? I'm great. What's happening on this rainy day? Uh, Nothing too much. How about you? Well, I'm sitting here talking to you on my phone, recording, looking out the window, and just pretty much happy to be alive, (laughs) which is good. (laughs) Definitely. Um, yeah, so boy, Bernie, you have quite a history with Buffalo music, and um, I'm sure I'm not going to know all of it. So if I forget to ask some questions, just fill me in. Um, but I, when did you first start playing music in Buffalo? So, like 1974, I'm in Brooklyn, um, going to going to some concerts there. Um, um, very tied into the fanzine scene uh, around around the country, and uh, um, you know, begin to write write about stuff in fanzines. One of them was called Silver Train, and then Bump Magazine in California, which will come into the, my story again uh, later on. Um, said, okay, there's a school in in Buffalo where where they're, uh, they got a fanzine, and I thought, you know, that's really what I want to do, write about music at that point, and so I, uh, I, I thought, okay, let me go up to Buff State, met Gary Sparazza, who uh, was the kind of linchpin and editor, and, and so through Gary Sparazza, I met lifelong friends like Bob Kozak and Dave Meinzer, and we, so 74, 75, 76 were the years that we were we were all writing and stuff like that. And Gary left to go work with the Whackers in Canada. And uh, I started writing a fanzine. I started working on another magazine at Bus State called called Foxtrot. And that, yeah. out of that came uh, Big Star Magazine, where... Mm. I was doing interviews with Alex Chilton, the Ramones, television talking heads. I go back down to New York. I record the sets of those guys. Uh, you know, got to know them a little. You know, uh, walk into CBGB's, Tommy Ramone would go, Bernie, and, you know, that kind of a thing. And then I think for all of us, Dave Meinzer, Bob Kozak, all of us, we, we, we wrote about the bands that we wanted to write about. We... You know, some of us were more into writing and Dave into doing artwork and layout and stuff. And 
you know, at some point uh, we all like, you know, gravitated into into playing music. And I played some parties. I played some open mic things at the dorms. And uh, I got some guys together and I decided to call the band The Good. And, um, and gradually from that, my little corner of the Buffalo New Wave world, you know, got started. You know, I, uh, the, the Enemies were my opening band at, uh, at the Masthead and, uh, you know, the George were my opening band at Hall Walls and, uh, you know, Dave McCurry said, you know, I said, who, how, what are the George like? And he said, five multi-instrumentalists from Kenmore. And I thought, <laughs> wow, you know, and then, and then they, you know, they, they really couldn't play, but they were so freaking perfect together. They were right. expressing a musical thing together. And, uh, and I think, I think I was also coming from, I think I was coming from a primitive music thing, liking primitive music and also playing primitively. So, so I had a, a great affinity for that. Yes. Yes. I, and I remember those gigs and I remember, I remember one in particular at the masthead and it was maybe your first last gig. Um, and I don't know. Yeah. yeah. And so I just remember, I don't know who was play, who was DJing that night but I brought my copy of a, a Who album and they had, you know, the song on there, The Good's Gone. So I had to make sure that they played that because this was your first last gig. But I just, you know, always loved you guys because it was just such chaos, but really melodic chaos. And I loved it. Right. Yeah. yeah and, uh, and it was, it was funny too, because like, uh, you know, since I was still tied into the New York thing, um, on a Tuesday, I, 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 we did a famous gig with the Blue Armandos at Buff State. Ah. We became the Silly Nuggets, Peter Labana, Bruce yeah. Eaton and stuff. And uh, on Tuesday, I got a copy of Anarchy in the UK. And Friday night, uh, you know, we may have been the first band in the U.S. to play it live. In, in, incredibly incompetently, and it certainly didn't fit with, like, my romantic kind of like pining for the girls kind of originals but but you know we were always we were always doing that and uh you know as the as the different versions of the good developed it got to be it got to be better with you know musicians like gary horowitz and bob kozak and mike highland uh that particularly that lineup recorded um walk around the world and yay uh, one of my favorites ever yeah yeah and judy yes so, uh, my other favorite ever and and uh, as we always say there's uh, two people that without whom none of this could have happened firstly dave Meinzer, uh going meeting up with tommy calandra and going to be yeah. okay yep. and uh and then dave uh saying to Tommy, you know, you should record Bernie Kugel, you should record The Good, you should record uh, um, Pauline, and, you know, him, Dave particularly, being being uh, uh, a trooper for us, you know, someone else might have just thought, oh, I got this good 
gig thing, uh, recording thing going, and and Tommy really got into it, and and I can't emphasize enough how unique Tommy was. I don't have to tell you personally, but but so many of the musicians from the '60s looked upon the punk rock scene and the '70s scene as dog shit, and. Uh, and Tommy was smart enough to see that there wasn't, there there may have been a competence issue in there, but there wasn't that much difference between the Rising Suns tracks that he recorded in '65 and what we were all doing in in '79. Right, yeah? right, totally. And let's just talk about Tommy Calander and BCMK for a minute. You know, I mean, th- that's where I recorded my first stuff, and and just the warmest, most humble most um affirming person and then Edie would just tolerate all of it she'd sit upstairs in the in the kitchen and just be like the sweetest ever person knowing that she's not going to be able to hear herself speak for the next you know 24 hours or whatever but you know and and that for for much of the time there wasn't even like after a hard day of work for her, there wasn't going to be um, a big financial oh, no. um, benefit for, from it. Yeah, because if the bands are paying very little, if the bands are playing um, paying almost nothing, nothing. you know, yeah. she has, she's got five hours of not being able to hear TV too well, you know, while this is going on. <laughs> totally. But also the sweetest, nicest, most, you know, generous person and you know and so so for people that don't know so bcmk records buffalo college of musical knowledge and um so you can find somewhere some records that were put out um on bcmk i know you know the pauline the carols had a few that just the good had some was also just you know kind of looked out well I know looked out for me outside of music too because at a certain point I was a student at UB and then Buff State and he uh got me a job at the record boutique (laughs) do you remember that place yes yeah record boutique on on you know main street a little look back across from UB um and then he also got me a I did a jingle for Frank Martin in the morning on WKET, you know that. And so got me 50 bucks for that. So I just, you know, just oodles of love, you know, about that, about Tommy and BCMK and all those people. And the good and the perils and all the bands playing. And, uh, and uh, I think there was, there was, you know, a, a few years there where there was, there wasn't, uh, that much in the way of competing with each other. I think there was a real bond between all the bands. Oh, for you know? sure. Yeah. And I, you know, I, to me, the competition is stupid. It's just stupid. There's enough years in the world for everybody. Another guy I want to mention and is uh, Friday Night Day Volko. Oh, who yeah. 
who is always taping these shows and always the biggest fan of all of us. And, you know, sadly, we lost him about a decade ago, but uh, but he, he'd always be at these things. But his memory lives on, that's for sure. And I can still picture yeah. him right there, <laughs> right there in the front. I just want to say a little plug here because the Isolators are a band that are, are playing currently, and they're actually going to play a few songs, and then I'm going to join them for some songs at Music is Art on September 11th. So super looking forward to that um, because these kids get it. <laughs> they get it, and I'm happy to to be there with them. So um, anything else you want to say? Actually, what I would ask of you, what I've asked of others that I've interviewed is, do you have any <laughs> any words of wisdom that you would um, give to any musicians or any I, anybody right now that's in the music scene? I, you know, just follow follow your dream. You know, uh, um, you know you what you love. Do what you love because that's that's the main thing. You know, uh, uh, it's a it's a million to one shot that it's you, particularly now that you're going to go to the multi million dollars status so you know do what you love and you know i still like uh going to the mohawk and seeing like you know the various different bands that come in from from out of town that are you know on the most grassroots level level there was one the psychotic reaction that i really yeah. like that, yep. that you know that uh, and you know over the years there have been you know so many great bands in buffalo and uh you know, uh, just keep on doing what you're doing and, uh, you know, F the people if they don't like what you're doing. That's right. And we'll be in the audience, right? Definitely. All right. All right. Thank you so much, Bernie. And we will be talking soon, I'm sure, again. Okay. Bye. Bye. Hey, do I have the fours? You do. Yes, you do. Oh, my gosh. So I have Biff Henrik and Gary Nicard, the unbelievable true vores <laughs> um <laughs> and so you know i've always considered the vores you know when i think about you know my involvement in music in the past and your involvement in music in the past you know i feel like we were like really supportive good cousins do you know what i mean like 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 maybe a little bit different um, family in that you, I felt like the Vores were, um, had a more artistic bent than like the scooters and the perils and, and people like that, but totally loved you guys and respected and supported you. And I feel the same for the other sort of camp. What do you think? Oh, it was like, uh, you know, one big family at that time. I mean, I, uh, between, um, you know, your band and, and uh, uh, the Jumpers and uh, the Enemies. We all got along like a house fire. Right. <laughs> well, I, I think that's right, because I think the, the thing that's interesting, that music, um, maybe more so in the past than now, although I, I hate to generalize anything, um, you know, we had wide-ranging tastes, and although we did, you know, sort of one avenue of, pursuit and other bands did other stuff there was crossover i mean a lot of it there was crossover of instrumentation there was crossover of the time which sort of seeps into everything that everybody does and so yeah it was 
you know, definitely supportive. I mean, we played on each other's shows all the time. All the time. You know, that's, that's, I mean, I think that was indicative. If there was a band you didn't want to play with, uh, you know, I don't imagine you would have done that. Um, although I don't know as though we ever turned down, well, we have turned down a few things, but not too many, that's for sure. Right. But I always felt like you guys were smarter than me. No, because, all right. So let's just back up like a second, because you guys have definitely um, forged roads and had careers and um, continue to work in like the arts industry, primarily like photography, like Biff. So um, both of you guys, actually Biff and Gary, have been um, directors of the SEPA Gallery, which is a nonprofit photography gallery um, in the past, correct? Correct. Yep. Yeah. And so then, and Biff, you have like your own business right now, um, Imagine Incorporated, which is like- uh, I mean, Yeah, it's Image, sorry, it's Imaging. Oh. I should have spelled it out. It's I M G I N K, which is which is hard to translate on the radio. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> well, okay. So Image Inc. Yeah. All right. So Image Inc. And so that is like commercial photography and graphic prints and things like that. Yeah, we have a orientation uh, towards artists. We print lots of stuff for other artists, for exhibitions, and you know, for art fairs and that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, we'll tackle any kind of one-off printing like that. We don't do printing press printing. Right, right, right. No, it's no, no, no. It's yeah, but it's, it's, it's geared towards artists. And it's beautiful. I've seen some of the stuff that you've done. Are you still in the same space that we rehearsed in? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So big, huge, beautiful, gorgeous prints that everyone wants to have, <laughs> basically. Hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and so so guitarist and singer and writer for the Boars, right, Biff? Yes. Correct. Okay. And Mr. Gary Nicard, mad scientist that you are. That's me. Um, <laughs> so um, not only you know were you at at SEPA, and so you're a bass player and writer for um, the Boars. Some yeah, I I've written a couple books and um, uh, you know articles, magazines, things like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Why? Because you're intelligent, young man. And so, <laughs> so, and so, and so. Some mistakenly think that, but you know. Well, I mean, you have, you know, you have taught at, you know, at the University of Buffalo and, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, that's kind of big. I mean, you taught other artists how to be better artists, I'm sure. And, sure. um, and the one really cool thing too is that I can still see great stuff that you post on Facebook, like sixties and seventies punk stuff, and ladies from you know the sixties and seventies fashion, which is all oh so cool. Yeah, I had uh, Dolly and uh, Emmy Lou Harris the other night. Uh, it was a pretty great picture. Uh, so it's a lot of fun. It's just uh, it's all done for fun. Hey, well, it is like, why else would we do it? I think at this point, yeah. right? Um, but the one other thing too, is that I saw, and I think I posted this too, but um, so Dolly Parton wrote um, Jolene and like, what's that song? I will always love you. 
yeah. on the same right. freaking day. She wrote those on the same day, like when she was like 20 or something. She's a prodigy. I mean, Dolly's, the, I mean, uh, almost uh, at the level of saint. I mean, Emmy Lou is the same for me. She's right. just like incredible. Uh, yeah, I have pretty broad taste. I, I do listen to country music, but this should be punk. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, I just think a good song is a good song, right, Biff? A good song is a good song. Yeah, generally speaking, that's right. That is right. So who the heck cares if you don't like it? We don't yeah. care. A good, song, a good song doesn't mean it's popular. Right? <laughs> um, all right, so let's take a, a like trip in the Wayback Machine. All right. So, and so um, we are, gosh, are we like in the late 70s, early 80s? Yep. Yeah, we are. And what the heck are you guys doing? What's happening then? We were in school. Yeah, we were in school at the time. In school? Like, yeah, That's where I met this, in school. Oh, boy. Trouble. Canal. It seems like everybody at that stage wanted to be in a band. Yeah, I think you know uh, it, it, we should note that, like in the in the seventies, the uh, there was a real close association of music with the art world. A lot of the right. um, you know prominent artists like Robert Longo, um, uh, Julian Schnabel, all kinds of really prominent artists started bands. Uh, Mike Kelly, you know, Destroy All Monsters. Uh, that was Kelly's band, um, you know, with Niagara. Um, so, yeah, there were a lot of, there was a lot of crossover. I think, you know, it may have been associated initially with like Warhol and the Velvets, but, um, you know, everybody was doing it. You know? Well, you know, it's not, it's not a thing. It's a lifestyle, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah. you know, or, or uh, it's more, it's you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's a compulsion. I a think compulsion. You know, it's true. If you're, um, you know, if you pursue it more than, you know, a few weeks. Well, what does that make us people? <laughs> oh, best. Yeah, it's insane, insane people. So, um, do you were you guys at the John Cale show at McVans? I I was not. Okay, you were Gary. Yeah. And then, yeah, where he knocked the lights down because they were in his face. Right, right. He threw a beer at one of his uh, backup singers. Uh, yeah, I remember it pretty well. I, you know, yeah, happy I'm dude. A big, I'm a big Kale fan. Yeah. Did you come to my house afterwards for the party? I don't remember that. <laughs> you would. You remember. I have a story from that party, but I wasn't there. You have what from the party? I have a story from that party, even though I wasn't. Okay, there. go for it. Go. So uh, Dave, who was also on our band, Dave Kulik, um, he was at the show, and he was at the party, and he said K.L. came up to him, like, right up to his face, nose to nose, and said, I've never seen another one like it. And he was referring to his nose. Dave Kulik and John K.L. have the same nose. <laughs> now we're all going to have to look and see. <laughs> yeah, Dave told me that story, like, the next day, you know. All right. And yeah. just, you know. Well, here's a story. So this, this was my first apartment 
um, ever. It was on uh, Grant and Delavan. And I lived with two boys that, which was fine. You know, we weren't dating or anything. And my father was fine with that because he felt like they would protect me. And so here we were on Grant Delavan. So I had went to the shows like during the middle of the week at McVans and then brought everybody back to the apartment. It was really loud. It was very crowded. My roommates were very cool about it. Um, and John Cale, so I had a, in the bathroom was a shower. We were on the top floor. So there was like a skylight. He stayed in the shower in the bathtub, like without the, you know, water running, but he stayed there and did Coke for, I'm going to say at least half of the party, maybe three quarters. Oh boy. And well, he, that accounts for his, uh, his, uh, semi-hostile performance. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. He probably didn't have his Coke yet. Unfortunately, yeah. unfortunately. All right. So there we were. And you mentioned the Velvets. I'll just say one more quick thing too. Um, the drummer's name of the Velvets, which I'm being terrible. Mo. I'm forgetting. Mo Tucker. Mo. So yes. um, the Rain a band I was in later actually opened up for Mo Tucker at CBGB's. Oh, great. Yeah. So you guys, the Vores were at CBGB's. Oh, yeah. yeah we no played CDs, Max's, Maxwell's, uh, Tier 3, uh, all kinds of places. We played this place called the Armory Tavern with um, the um, with the enemies. Um, I, I was that a I think that was a Hall Walls benefit. Was um, that here? Here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The old Armory Tavern yeah. by the Armory that yep. burned down. Yep. And uh, and uh, then we played a we played. I remember the most memorable local gig uh, with the enemies was uh, McVan's gig. And there, I don't know who these people were, but there's a huge fight erupted. And was that the um, beach every, party? Was that when they 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 like brought in all this sand or no? No, no, it was I don't think there. so. But the police, uh, oh, like a hundred cops came. We ran out the back door, and uh, everyone got arrested. I guess I don't know. And, uh, there were people I never seen anything like that. There were people. Uh, like the the enemy's manager had someone on his back hitting him in the head with a beer bottle, um, and I remember Joe Bomzak saw that and he put his guitar down, walked up to the, the guy and punched him in the face, and the guy flew back and yeah. was like lights out. You know, Joe's a big guy. Oh yeah, yeah. But that was when was Biff that? and I looked at each other and said, "Let's go." Yeah. And then you know, so I'm like Time running out the back door with uh, you know how they had that. It was like a side door over there off the side stage right, right. running out there with like a half stacked marshal you know i mean like way too heavy to carry you know <laughs> that's funny and did you go yeah, under the viaduct? do you guys remember under the viaduct at mcvans at all did you go hang no, out there i don't remember that oh okay. well i mean i know i know what you're talking about but i i never hung out well you viaduct. know what it's still there so it is it is yeah you drive under if you ever go to 7-eleven <laughs> on Niagara and Hurdle, you look yeah. to the right, that viaduct is where a lot of conversations and other things happen. So, oh, there you go. interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I never went under the viaduct. That one's new to me. <laughs> that sounds like a nice book, though. Under, under the viaduct. The, viaduct. <laughs> the Vore's sound is, you know, the Vore's sound comes from Biff and I interacting in a very weird and intuitive way. Hmm. I always, uh, I always approach playing as an experiment every time, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I mean, I know my way around the fretboard, but on the other hand, you know, I 
it's an experiment every time to see, oh, what if I do it this way? What if I go that way? What if I, you know, smack the guitar in a different manner? You know, what kind of different sounds will I get? And because um, Gary's right, I mean, there's plenty of guitar players out there who are more proficient than I am. Yeah, but that doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. It really That's doesn't. Right. Yeah. And I was That's just right. talking to the enemies because um, they're going to be part of this podcast too. And Fred and I were both talking about, you know what? Neither one of us can read music or can even say like, oh, play this note. But the way that we, you know, he sings, he'll sing it like play this note, sing the, and sing the note. And, and I do that too. But also it's like, what feel are you thinking about? So if you could talk to me like in a feeling, then I can sort of, you know, kind of jump in there and see if I can contribute anything. Well, maybe yeah. you guys would understand that. That's the paint part I was talking about. It's yeah. like, you know, you mix you mix different colors together and, and you come up with a new color and, uh, and you go, wow, I never saw that one before. Um, and so I think music, at least the way Biff and I make it, it's a lot of experimenting, um, you know, so there's the mad scientist again. Well, there you go. Um, you know. <laughs> hey, so listen, my really smart cousins, it's been so fun to talk to you both. <laughs> it's a guess. Yeah, and so I want to definitely come see you at the Revolution Gallery in October if that happens or anywhere else. And um, hope to see your photos and hear your stuff soon. Yeah, and let's at great. some point in the future do a Perils and Vores gig. Let's do it. Four now from Buffalo. That would be fun. Yep. All right. Okay. Okay. Love you guys. Talk Thank you later. Bye-bye. Well, hello, Elmer Plotz. And hello, Pauline. How are you? I'm doing very well. It's a beautiful day here in Eden, New York. Uh-huh. Same over here for Orchard Park. So um, I just want to explain to people, if for some mysterious reason people don't know who you are, um, I want to introduce you as a Buffalo music and doc. Okay, shit. Let me do this again. <laughs> we'll stop there. Okay. Well, hello, Elmer Plotz. How are you? Very good. How are you doing, Pauline? I'm doing well. I, for those of you that don't know who Elmer is uh, by some freak of nature, um, Elmer is not only a SUNY professor, but he is a Buffalo music historian and documentarian. And Elmer has um, produced and done a lot of work for uh, a movie documentary called Punk 101. Am I saying that right? Buffalo Point, Buffalo Punk 1.0. Okay, there you go. We got it, we got it. <laughs> okay. Um, which is very cool, which actually has some interviews and some footage and some music of early Buffalo independent original music slash punk bands. So there's that. But also, um, I wanted to talk to you because you are writing a book. Yes, I am. Um, a publisher approached me uh, about a year and a half or two ago and said, hey, we're thinking we'd like to do a book on Buffalo punk rock. And we heard you might be a good person to write it. So they have a handshake deal. And it's one of those things that we'll have to see how everything works out. But uh, I'm assuming everything will work out with that deal. If it doesn't, I'll publish it myself. But 
yeah, I'm working on it. And it's a different approach from the documentaries because documentaries, you have to be able to show stuff. And uh, a book is a little bit maybe more detail and uh, making sure things line up as far as dates and times. And, and it's a history. And uh, so I'm going to approach it as such and hopefully make it fun at the same time. Um, are you going to like make your students read it and then <laughs> and then test them on it? No, as tempting as that might be. Uh I, I have had I have had them do things like interview me about the movies and stuff because you know they need to learn how to interview people. So it's like, okay, I'm doing a press conference on Buffalo Punk 1.0. Ask me questions and write a story. But uh, there's only so far I can push them, you know. Right. Oh, right, 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 right. I do remember though at Buff State, I used to have to buy huge volumes of books by my professors and then get tested on them. So I know in, in the past that has happened. <laughs> I try not to do that. And besides which it's a whole different topic, but the prices for college books are just insane. So oh, most no. of the stuff I assign, it tends to be online. Yeah. And I try to keep it a little bit more affordable for the students, well, cool. but that's a different subject. Yes, it is. It is. And so, I actually wanted to, I don't know how far along you are in, um, in your book process, but I know that in interviewing people for the movie, the documentary, documentary, um, you can talk to me about those experiences. Like, was there anything that was, um, kind of shocking to you or you just didn't know? Well, I found I found out a lot. I mean, um, one of the good things about doing that was I, I actually started it 19 years ago. The movie, crazy as that sounds, wow. uh, it, and I started doing some interviews. It was just going to be a small project in conjunction with the this is a CD release show that was at uh, the trial for they had ten bands reforming yes, for one I night, yep, including Pauline and the Perils. And uh, then the interviews, the stuff was just so good. And uh, one of the things about starting it back then was I did get a chance to do about a 40-minute interview with Joe Bombsack of The Enemies, uh-huh. who's no longer with us, and also about a 40-minute interview with Mark Freeland, who, again, is no longer with us. Right. So uh, to me, that's valuable because, you know, you can't talk to them anymore. Right. And so there is a little bit of the historical record with them. Uh, I found out a lot of things. Some of the stories were crazy, uh, like the one with the Restless, with their experience with Al Cooper. Yeah, right. And uh, how they basically he turned out to be a horrible match as a producer for them and how they got him booted from the job, uh, basically by sending the record company uh, a bill for all of the, for what it cost for the illicit activities that Al Cooper ran up while in Buffalo. Wow. Well, uh, that would be a, that's a documentary in and of itself. That could be. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I'm going to be talking to some, some of the members about the rest of the restless about that because, uh, there's a whole education about how the music business works with what happened to the restless, the sad but true story totally. of uh, some great musicians who 
really had everything go wrong for them once they reached a major label. Joe Bomzak for a minute. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, because yeah. I just interviewed the enemies um, for, well, for a podcast, another podcast, this podcast, actually. <laughs> By the time it comes out, it'll be this podcast. Um, and we had a you know good amount of conversation about Joe Bomzak, and it was so interesting to me how sensitive he was. And how, um, I'm just going to say, I'm going to say lacking in self-confidence, actually, he was, because um, you just don't think of Joe that way at all. And the beautiful songs that he wrote and, you know, the way that he played and the way that he presented himself. Did you learn anything from your interview with him? Yeah, he actually thought of himself in terms of, I remember him saying that, uh, yeah, the, the the kids used to fight and everything, uh, but, you know, we were singing love songs. Yeah. And which was true. They were very loud and, you know, sometimes ag- aggressive ones. And, of course, Joe's image, I mean, he was big, strong, you know, known for throwing off his guitar and, you know, throwing uh, people fighting throwing them out into the street and coming back in and picking up his guitar and playing again. It's true. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's legendary uh, for his size strength and the fact that he looked like he was 15 years older than he was. So even when he was like 24, he looked like he was 40. And so he was just this intimidating character, but he really wasn't. uh, Although, you know, when you talk to members of the band, uh, it's like every band, they there were uh, there were dust ups, you know. There were times when they wanted to beat each other up, whether they did or not, you know. Uh, especially when you're talking about a time like that, most of the people were pretty young, and I mean, how mature were any of us when we were you know 24 years old? Oh, not I. Yeah, uh, and I mean, you're, you know, things that you can laugh about now you fought about back then. For sure. And I guess that's one of the things I bring to uh, the different projects is I was a little bit of an outsider and then I grew up out in the country down in Cattaraugus County uh-huh. and I got some of the records. I heard some of the things, glimpse, sort of, uh, audio glimpses uh, off the radio shows like anything that's rock and roll uh, would pick up some of the local things. And so I, I was aware of them. I actually brought the enemies down to St. Bonaventure when I was going to college there. Cool. But I didn't really know the people. So after I graduated, went away for a few years, came back to Buffalo and started get, getting back involved with music, I got to know people then. And I got to know the stories then. So I was able to approach it more with an outsider's sort of dispassionate eye. I didn't have any old grudges. 
Uh, so I'm, I became more of a collector of stories and, uh, which is trying, perfect for writing a book. I mean, it's perfect for telling a story because you're not biased you're hearing but, it right from their mouth. Pretty much. I mean, I, over the years, I have certainly become friends with any number of, of people from that scene, yourself included, uh, your whole band, yeah. you know, the jumpers, the enemies, uh, Dave Meinzer's outfits, they've all become friends, but the early year stuff, the, I was always looking back at that and, uh, trying to, it's almost like in some ways in my back of my brain, I was trying to reconstruct being there since I missed out a little bit on, I never made it to McVans. Right. Unfortunate for you, my son. <laughs> I know, I know. But, um, but the stories live on and, uh, I'll just never forget as long as I live. So there was a time when McVans was the you know the only thing, and then the Schuper House kind of came to be, um, the Masthead, which was right kind of attached to Buff State. So then there was those three. But when the Continental came to be, uh, everybody shifted there. Um, you know, there was more people there. The money was better, whatever. But I distinctly remember, and it always it just pains me still. Um, when Joe Tarose, the owner of McVans, called me because we hadn't played the Perils, hadn't played there in a while, and he was just like, "Pauline, when are you gonna come and play at McVans?" And literally, he talked like that. And I said, "Oh, I, you know, I don't know, Joe. We've got this, this, and this booked, and I don't know that we maybe played there one more time before McVans actually closed." And it always it just hurts my heart, so I'm just publicly admitting it. Um, that that was there, but so many memories. And the viaduct is still there. I just went by um, hurdle, the corner of Hurdle and Niagara, which is now a 7-Eleven. But there's a viaduct kind of to the, if you look at 7-Eleven to the right of it, um, where a lot of things happened and a lot of weed was smoked and a lot of conversations and God only knows what else happened mm. there. So that's there. It was interesting because it wasn't like we, so... I talk about this a lot that those days we were like a family. So like the enemies would play and I would definitely go see them on Tuesday night at McFans. And then on Thursday night, you know, the perils would play and they would come see us. And then on Saturday night, you know, um, electro man would play or, you know, Freeland would do something the fans. And so we would all go see them. And so we were all pissed off <laughs> for our own various and sundry reasons um, so I think that came through the music, but in subtle, sometimes subtle and sometimes not so subtle ways, we were different than each other. And um, I know that we would stick up for each other like we would for a family member and we would support each other like we would for a family member. And it wasn't that we were trying to be like New York City or, you know, L.A. or being a mod or being a rocker. You know, nothing, we weren't trying to do that. It's just we were the result of listening to that and then, you know, the environment that we were in. And it did get weird. I'll just say this. It did get weird when every other area started to get attention except for Buffalo, you know. Mm -hmm. But I think Buffalo has always had, not always, it's changing right now, and we have Buffalo up right now, which is awesome, and people are really getting how cool it is here. But in, then it was always a, like a kind of like a joke, like an underlying joke. Like you could, that could be the Buffalo could be the punchline. 
in some jokes of like just being like dead end or not really having anything happening. And so we were sort of pissed about that, I would say, as well. And I think you can hear that in some of the music. Yeah. And uh, Mark Nowak did a chapter in a book on goth. The title of it, well, he, he sort of argued that the Continental was one of the launching places of goth culture. The title of the chapter was Death in Buffalo is Redundant. <laughs> and so exactly what you're getting at. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we were also in the middle of an industrial, of a dying industrial landscape. True. I mean, uh, it was 1982 when uh, Bethlehem Steel pretty much did its last dying gasp and laid off something like 8,200 people in one day right. uh, of the best paying jobs in Western New York. Oh, my gosh. I feel that, like Paul Bobzap actually worked there. Is that, am I, is that something I made up in my head or did he actually? He, he may have. I vaguely remember that. He yeah. spent most of, most of his non-music career he spent in the trucking industry logistics kind of thing, basically loading trucks and getting them headed out and things like that. But I believe I remember him talking about briefly working at Bethlehem Steel, but you'd have to fact check me on that one. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. So it's cool. This is the ability to, you know, connect with the musicians and the fans and the documentarian person and historian is really it's really fun and it really is important. And I'm so glad that people are interested in listening. Um, so music is art, uh, is coming up September 11th and you will be able to see some of these bands. there. certainly the enemies. Um, I'm going to be playing there, uh, with a band called the isolators, a really great, uh, young band that are going to back me up. And, um, you know, doing something a little bit closer to what I did before the perils. Um, so it's going to be a lot of fun. And so I hope that people that are listening here will come out and see these bands because some of us are still playing like we're not dead yet. So <laughs> I'm really looking forward to uh, to seeing that. I, I always re- I always call uh, music as our the gathering of the tribe. Oh, yeah. Good. It's where everybody comes together. And from all the different scenes, and you see the people you haven't, you may not have seen for the previous year or two, and they're there. That's why having it back is just fantastic. It is. is. And something just occurred to me, Elmer, that because we were talking about then and now, I don't feel like there was a lot of bullying going on, like in the early years of Buffalo music, at least within our own tribe, okay? Within our own people. If somebody wore black lipstick, we weren't going to, you know, bully them. If somebody, you know, a guy had a dress on, we didn't bully them. If, you know, a girl had, you know, garters on and stuff like that, we didn't bully her. We accepted everyone. Yeah, and, the, and the, the violence came from the outside. True. That was... That, uh, that did happen. It um, did happen. I mean, yeah. Terry Sullivan, one of the things that happened to him with the restless was getting attacked on the street. I'm just amazed that, that, you know, that I didn't get more trouble <laughs> than I did, but because. You're just so uh, nice that nobody would give you trouble, Paul. Oh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> Maybe I need to get a blonde wig. Be in a cover yeah. band. No. <laughs> anyway, so, so, uh, you know, anyways, I don't, it's just so good to talk to you and we're not done. I mean, we're going to continue the conversation and 
Do you have a name for your book? I do not. Okay. At this point, I'm leaving it open. Uh, I'm still in the process of collecting. I probably, between using some of the interviews that I used for the uh, for the documentary that was about 50 people, I will probably have interviewed at least another 60, 50 or 60. I will be re-interviewing uh, some people. I hope you uh, ho- Hopefully you. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you do because, yes, times have changed since my first interview 18 years ago, I think. So, it, yeah. and, and, it's, and it's different, too, what you look for in a book. Uh, like I said, the details matter more than the visuals. True. And uh, But getting back to what you were talking about, one of the cool things I got from uh, one of the people, I'm trying to remember her name, I think, she may, I think she may have been a friend of yours at Buff State, but she was talking about how she actually liked it better up here after a while because uh, when she went back to New York, the New York scene by the early 80s had turned really dark. Yeah. There were there was a ton of drug use, heavy, hard drugs. She had said some of the people she grew up with on Long Island, some of the girls were turning tricks in order to pay for their drugs. Yeah. you know, on the edge of the music scene. Whereas it's not like there weren't drugs in Buffalo, but there was an awful lot of beer. You know, it was, I think uh, it was a, it was a lighter uh, in terms in terms of substance. It was a, a, a lighter kind of uh, thing going on. Yeah. And uh, most of us, you know, there's only a couple people that I can even think about that got heavily into you know, heavy drugs, and most of them survived. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, there's one person I'm thinking of off the top of my head, but he lived many years, um, you know, and just died maybe within the last 10 years. So I think you're right, Elmer. I think, I just think the heaviness wasn't he- in Buffalo. Which is sort of interesting considering that we were regarded as an industrial, a bleak industrial wasteland by the rest of the world. But we're also the nicest people in the world. So when people leave Buffalo, they're like, oh man, I just miss nice people. We're almost Canadian. <laughs> well, I, yeah. Yeah. I, yes. Except I think we argue a little bit more. Like we're not quite as quick to say, oh, yep, mm-hmm, you're right. I think yep. a little bit more of an argument that goes on. However, true, eh? We're not, we are nice too. Yes, we are. <laughs> right. So what else, what else can I, uh, what else can I get out of you, Elmer? <laughs> well, uh, people should contact me if they have stories. Okay. Uh, one of the things that I didn't think was real true, but uh, when the first documentary came out, uh, Buffalo Punk 1.0, uh, there was a review of it in one of the punk magazines, Flipside or something like that, that basically called it an an insider's piece or something like that, which I didn't really think uh, means. Uh, that it was, you know, it was just talking to the insiders of the scene. Well, yeah, it was most of the, I think I got most of the people who were important. The two two partial regrets I did have for that movie one is I didn't get a chance to talk to uh, oh, what's her name? 
I'm blanking. Is it Dodie Hall? I didn't get a chance to talk to Dodie Hall, and that Dodie. was one of my regrets. I wish she would get in contact with me because uh, I would have given her bands. I did talk to Patrick Kane. Good. I talked to Pat, but I would have given them a little bit more attention. And the other thing that I really dropped the ball on was I should have given more attention to BCMK because okay. BCMK and Tommy Calandra yep. were huge. So hopefully I get that taken care of in the book. Yeah, cool. Uh, All right. Another, another thing to know about, it didn't get quite as much publicity, but there was a Buffalo Punk 2.0, and it was Buffalo Punk 2.0, a, a toy story. Okay. Uh, and it was what what that came about out of was uh, I had I had included the toys in Buffalo in the 1.0, but uh-huh. then I started talking with people and Kevin Kowicki, uh a.k.a. Rocky Star, yeah. uh, he, he he sort of made a comeback a little bit and started doing shows around here. And I, I found out their story. Uh, and it, it was a shorter one. It was about half an hour. And they were just, uh, it was just sort of a classic story of the band striving to to make it big. And they, they did move down to uh, New York. York yeah. And eventually Alan... Uh, Kevin's brother did die of a heroin overdose. Right. And, uh, but their story is still, you know, they, I thought it was a story worth telling and their music, I don't think they get the credit they deserve as being a, a great band. So here's, uh, here's, a, here's a thing. They could really play. They could really sing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They, they, and a lot of us couldn't like really <laughs> That's the truth. You know, we just sort of learned, you know, after a while we we taught ourselves. But I think when they came on, and incidentally, they wrote a song called Pauline Mm -hmm. (laughs) about me. Mm -hmm. Pauline, Pauline, she's the new wave queen. (laughs) But anyway, honestly. But anyways, but they could actually, these are people that really could play their instruments. And so maybe, just maybe it was a little intimidating to some oh. some of us i i was not intimidated because i i they could really sing like they did great harmonies and i thought that was so important and me cleaver could really play the bass you know and it just and the Kalecki brothers were so cool so yeah but that's I, my, that my i think it might have been a little bit that they were centered outside of the city they were actually from niagara right. county and uh yeah uh ransom somewhere's up in there Okay. And uh, so they were a little bit outsiders in the scene. Uh, they also, they did sign a contract with Eddie Tice to manage uh-huh. them. And he got them part of the way, but then they decided to leave him and go to New York City. Yeah. Which leaving a new, and going to New York City was sort of a rite of passage for some bands, but it was, right. it didn't usually work out too well for many, for many bands from Buffalo in that era. Right. Uh, with the with the toys, new toys, as they were later known, they did get to go down there. They ended up uh, they ended up playing with their heroes, uh, Johnny Thunders. Uh, uh, did they? Yeah, unfortunately, they picked up some of his bad habits. Right. Uh, but they were they were part of that scene, and uh, Kevin actually has done pretty well over the last twenty years. Sadly, after his brother died, eventually he started sort of started having a, uh, a comeback and doing fairly well going over to Europe and playing these tours in Europe. 
Oh, good. Go over and play in Europe for for a month, and then come back and uh, he took care of his taking care of his father Alvin. His father, I mean, again, the Toy Story was so great. Their father Alvin Kalecki was a World War II veteran uh, who was one of the I believe he was one of the first soldiers at either uh, Hiroshima or Nagasaki. Nagasaki after the after the bomb and stuff like that. And he was like their biggest fan. Aww, and one, once they started doing their comeback, he would come out to, when Kevin would play shows up here, say 10 years ago. At age 85, he'd show up, you know, wearing a Johnny Thunders t-shirt. Oh, yay. And a, and a leather jacket. <laughs> uh, Alvin was like the nicest guy and the coolest guy. Mm-hmm. And like I said, it all came together for a story. Uh, so I'll have to send you a copy sometime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay, so my next two questions and maybe my last two questions is where can we find those documentaries that you already have out? Well, at this point, we've done sort of limited screenings and uh, I've made them available. As you know, uh, Bob James has been putting out some archival projects uh, from his recording archives and he's helped fund them with Kickstarter. Yep. And what I've done is made them available. If you give so much money toward the Kickstarter, you can get a copy. Right. Okay. And uh, occasionally I make them available. Uh, you can just order them through PayPal through me. You should probably check the uh, the, the Buffalo Punk 1.0 page on Facebook. Okay. I, I'm at varying times more active than others. BFLO space PNK dot or PNK space one if you're looking for it on Facebook. Uh, and I've, we've done a few theater ones. Uh, it's one of those things oh, where... Do a drive-in one. Wouldn't that be fun? What's that? Do a drive-in one. A drive-in. <laughs> that would be fun. You know what? And somebody could play before or after or something. Isn't that? That's a great idea. Let's just take well, that. We'd have to see. There's, there's only one uh, drive-in left in uh, Niagara and Erie County, though. Well, is it the one in Delavan? Because there is one in Delavan. No, that's Cattaraugus County. Oh. Uh, and I I don't know. I think it may still be there. There's one in Jamestown, but there's one just up over the right. Erie County line and on Transit Road. Yeah. That's the only one left in, both in Erie and Niagara County, as far as I know. Well, there you go, people. Someone with a, you know, a great amount of energy and a great attitude and the right heart. That's what we should do. My, my other idea, something I would love to see somebody do, is do a cover band doing all music created here in Western New York. Oh, doing nice. songs by the Jumpers, the Enemies, by Pauline and the Perils, you know, some of uh, Dave Meinzer's various outfits, and have it be an call it, call it the, uh, the coveralls. Oh, that's and, uh, fun. That's a fun name. Yeah. All we need is people to do it. Uh-huh. I could, I could try singing, but I, I would probably sing badly, but I could try. <laughs> I think we need some young whippersnappers. We do. We need yeah. the kids of the punks. Hey, isolators. There's an idea for you. <laughs> <laughs> they, the isolators could do a, a full set. They're so uh, good, really. Uh, of, Buffalo, of Buffalo punk stuff. That would be they cool. Could. Probably about a full set in probably about 15 minutes. but anyway all right okay well so nice to talk to you elmer and let's talk again okay i look forward to hearing this podcast keep doing what you're doing you're doing a great job thanks
Thanks. It's been fun. So where were you in 1977? This is Elmer Plotz back again with just a reminder again that I'm working on a book on Buffalo Punk Rock, a history of it. So if you can tell me a little bit about where you were in 1977, 78, maybe all the way up to 1990 or so with Buffalo Punk Rock, New Wave, original music, I would love to hear your stories. And who knows, it might just make it into the book. So you can reach me at my email P-L-O-E-T-Z at Fredonia.edu or just track me down on Facebook Homer Plots P-L-O-E-T-Z Hope to talk to you soon and where, where were you in 77 anyways? <laughs>